1: Hello, and welcome to New Books and Philosophy, a podcast channel with the New Books Network. I'm Carrie Figdor, Associate Professor of Philosophy at the University of Iowa. I'm co-host of the channel, along with Robert Talese, Professor of Philosophy at Vanderbilt University. Together, we bring you conversations with philosophers about their new books, drawing from a wide range of areas of contemporary philosophical inquiry. Today's interview is with Jonathan Birch associate professor at the London School of Economics. His new book, The Philosophy of Social Evolution, is just out from Oxford University Press. It seems to go against evolutionary theory for an individual to give up its own chances at reproducing in order to increase the fitness of others. Yet social behavior is found throughout nature, from bacteria and social insects to wolves, whales, and of course human beings. So what makes self-sacrifice to any degree even possible, given that self-interested behavior is the default? In his new book, Birch critically examines the conceptual foundations of social evolution theory, considering debates about kin selection versus group selection, uh, cultural as well as genetic transmissible bases of inheritance, and inclusive versus neighbor-modulated fitness. He also discusses the view of multicellular organisms as societies of cells and extends the concept of genetic relatedness to include cultural relatedness by means of common cultural traits. Let's turn to the interview. Hello, Jonathan Birch. Welcome to New Books in in Philosophy. Hi, Carrie. I'm glad to have you here to talk about your book, The Philosophy of Social Evolution. Um, I was just thinking, um, I've done books on the philosophy of social ontology, you know, what objects mm-hmm. are social and institutions, and, which is a metaphysical yeah. thing. And then I've also done on social cognition, which is about, you know, how we understand mm-hmm. the minds and behavior of others. And this is a whole different sort of s- aspect of the social you might say, which is how we how we and you know across um you know throughout the the biological world um different forms of in some way cooperative behavior have developed uh through evolution and yeah.
2: so how social um, behavior evolves
1: yeah so um so this is, you know, and, and of course, the pressing question, one of the pressing questions today is, well, just it ha- has it really evolved all that much? It, it seems we're, we're not quite as cooperative as, mm. as we might be.
2: We're not as good as ants.
1: No. <laughs> so um, before we get into the book, um, the book itself, maybe you can say a bit about your background and how you came to write this book.
2: My background, yeah, I mean, my my first degree was in natural sciences at the University of Cambridge, and then I moved in to history and philosophy of science from there. I mean, it's one of the great things about that course that there's a kind of history and philosophy of science unit um, that Peter Lipton was actually teaching, and he he was a great inspiration to me, really sort of got me hooked on the the subject. And um, this topic of social evolution, I sort of got into around, I think, about 10 years ago now, in about 2009, I think what, thinking back to what really drew, uh, drew me to it, there was a paper by uh, David Queller and Joan Strassman published in that year, 2009. It was called Beyond Society, the Evolution of Organismality. And uh, I had no idea what that term organismality was supposed to mean. Uh, I just found it very intriguing. And the basic thesis of that paper was that you can see the the organism itself as being a kind of social phenomenon that an organism like a human being you know made of uh, countless cells is a kind of society of individual cells and I just found that idea so striking and I'd never come across it before I just wanted to know you know the history of it and the biology of it and the the philosophy of it and try and find out whether it worked or not um, and then 10 years later that that is kind of one chapter of the book, The Multicellular Organism as a Social Phenomenon. And then, I mean, I, I was working on that, that stuff for about a year. And then in 2010, there was a great big controversy that was kicked off by a paper in Nature by Martin Novak, uh, E.O. Wilson, the famous uh, sort of insect biologist, mm-hmm. and Karina Tarnita that was kind of challenging a great deal of the received wisdom about the evolution of cooperation. So that I mean, that was really kind of crucial for me, too, because it sort of felt like the rug was being pulled out from from under my project, you know, because I just started on this project trying to make sense of the organism as a social phenomenon, as this product of social evolution and learning about the basic principles of social evolution. And then those basic principles were being called into question. And so I was drawn into that controversy. Um, And that's reflected in the book, too. I mean, about half of it is about why social evolution is so controversial and what the controversies are mm-hmm. and then half of it is about trying to use ideas from social evolution theory to explain things they were never originally intended to explain like you know where organisms actually come from in the first place
1: okay so well that's that sets us up to to be look at the first part of the book um where you begin with the the basic conceptual foundations um Uh, which as you trace to W.D. Hamilton and, and Mm -hmm. his work. Um, so maybe, uh, you can start us off by saying, first of all, what are, what are the sorts of, when we're talking about cooperation, social behavior, um, you uh you introduce hamilton's own four part mm. scheme right yeah. social behavior is behavior that's either mutually beneficial or it's somehow selfish or it's altruistic or or spiteful um so could yeah. you give us a, an overview of of hamilton's approach mm.
2: yeah i mean the uh i mean the book gets quite abstract quite quickly i suppose um, but it's crucial here to remember that sort of in the background it's it's real phenomena, real biological phenomena that we're trying to explain, real things going on in the natural world, uh, where it seems as though, you know, on the face of it, you, you look at these things and you think the basic logic of evolution is being denied because you've got organisms doing things that don't seem to be promoting their own survival or their own reproduction, but seem to be promoting the survival and reproduction of some other organism. I mean, social insects are perhaps the best known example of that, where you have so-called eusocial colonies with the queens and the workers, and the workers just seem to spend their entire lives raising the queen's larvae rather than reproducing themselves. And, you know, in some extreme cases, they do, they do crazy things. They, they sort of turn themselves into giant storage sacks uh, for food for the rest of the colony, sort of not even moving, just hanging off the roof. Sometimes there's a nice example um, that I rather like where ants, this is a species of ants in Brazil. They'll, they want to, you know, they're trying to defend the nest from, from predators. And so at night they seal the entrance of the nest, but it has to be sealed from the outside. So every night there's a, there's a small number of workers that go to the outside of the nest and seal it up from the outside and they will die overnight in the cold nighttime temperatures They'll never see the morning. Um, that sort of reminds me of Captain Oates. They're kind of sacrificing their lives so that their, their sisters can survive. Mm-hmm. Um, and for a long time, you know, biologists looked at examples like this from insects and other species and didn't really know how to reconcile this with the logic of evolutionary theory at all you know and you you had sort of ideas of group selection and things like that that you know they're doing it for the good of the group they're doing it maybe even for the good of the species there was no really sort of worked out theory right up until the 60s and that's when W.D. Hamilton you know at that time in the early 60s just a grad student in London uh, he was funded through LSE but also kind of enrolled at at UCL um, was just kind of Trying to work out the maths of all this and came up with the framework that the book is about, you know, the framework of, of kin selection theory or inclusive fitness theory for trying to make sense of it. And I mean his framework is quite a quite an abstract framework. And in a way, the first thing he does is sort of abstract away from the from the kind of biological details of particular cases of social behavior and comes up with this way of sort of classifying behaviors. By the kinds of effects they have on the fitness or reproductive success of the organism that performs the behavior and the, and the organism that's affected, so that's where this four-part scheme, uh, schema comes from, where the mutually beneficial behaviors, you know the ones that they boost the, the fitness of the organism that does the behavior, but they also boost the fitness of the recipient of the, the effect of the behavior. And then you've got selfish behaviors that, that harm some other organism but benefit the agent that performs them. And then you've got these, these very puzzling categories, you know, altruistic behavior, which for Hamilton it's nothing to do with the psychological motivations of the behavior, but it's about a behavior that harms the organism that performs it, that reduces the fitness of that organism and boosts the fitness of some other one, like the ants, you know, raising the queen's larvae. Uh and spiteful behaviours, which are behaviours that, that are arguably even more puzzling because the the organism that performs the behaviour is harmed and the recipient that's affected gets harmed as well.
1: Okay. Um so, how far? Let me just ask. How you mentioned insects, obviously the social insects, but some of the interesting cases mm. you talk about in the book, for example, the the bubble net feeding of whales, where they yeah. create this, this this cordon of of air bubbles around a, a school of fish that the fish won't go through, and mm. then they kind of all go in to feed, which is fascinating for for somebody who is not aware of these things. Mm. But let me let me just um, one of the things that um uh it it seems the the sense of social behavior that we're talking about here is, is 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 widespread if we're talking about you know insects and whales and presumably yeah. also human beings and, and bacteria just, and bacteria as well right um and and wolves and and so on and so forth and mm. um so so one of the one of the questions that that occurred to me was you know we're talking about altruistic behavior spiteful behavior you know selfish we're using terms that you know a- appear at least to have some sort of psychological aspect yeah. at least mm-hmm. at least in the case of human beings there are many people who will talk about social behavior and they and it isn't and it's somehow considered somehow qualitatively different right there's there's a moral dimension to it or something like that. How mm. does, you know, from the perspective of somebody doing social evolutionary theory, how, how are these kind of differences between, say, human moral behavior, you know, punishment, mm. legal systems, and then, you know, bacteria and since insects, is, is there any discomfort in the way the concepts of social behavior are used across uh, you know so widely or is this Hmm. just simply not an issue in the field it's
2: uh, there's potential there for confusion right i mean you're, you're using terms like altruistic and spiteful where the ordinary meaning of these terms you know is rich with psychological connotations now that altruism is is in in ordinary life you know it's behavior motivated by concern for others and then in this area of science and social evolution research, that's, um, those psychological connotations are completely stripped away. You know, and what you're left with is this purely behavioral notion where it's about the effects of the behavior, uh, the consequences of the behavior for, for reproductive success. It's only because those psychological connotations are stripped away that you can then apply it to bacteria, insects, as well as whales, wolves, humans Mm -hmm. yeah so one shouldn't exaggerate the the extent of the similarity in the in the mechanisms in the proximate or psychological mechanisms the um but nevertheless there is this kind of uh similarity at a different level of description you know that there's there's similarity at the level of doing things that harm your own fitness and benefit the fitness of someone else
1: Okay. Um, So what, what is Hamilton's rule? I mean, that's kind of the, you know, it does Mm. there, there are technical, there's a lot of, there's a lot of technical discussion in the book, but also you take the time to explain things for people who are not well versed in that. Um, Mm. But Hamilton's rule itself takes up is, is an important um, uh, concept or, or, part of the whole of yeah. the whole package so could could you explain his the rule and then how you interpret it mm. as more of a organizing framework than a than exactly
2: a rule. yeah it's an important idea you know for hamilton and an important idea in the book you know because i sort of argue that it provides this organizing framework for social evolution research yeah so this is kind of hamilton bill hamilton back in the 60s still a graduate student really had incredibly insightful ideas. I mean, there's almost no one else like him in the history of evolutionary biology, I think, except Darwin, of course, and arguably R.A. Fisher. Just the coming out of nowhere, these insights. And perhaps the sort of, the, most, the single most important one is this idea that has come to be known as Hamilton's rule, you know, after Hamilton. is a kind of, um, trying to capture a sort of fundamental condition describing the circumstances under which a social behaviour will evolve by natural selection. Um, And it basically says, well, the the behaviour will evolve when the benefits uh, conferred on whoever's affected by that behaviour, defined in a certain way, you know, defined in terms of the long-run consequences for their reproductive success, um, outweigh the costs that that the actor incurs in performing that behavior. So it's a kind of cost-benefit weighing. But then the crucial insight is that to get that condition for when the, when the behavior will be favored by selection, you have to weight the benefits by what Hamilton calls a coefficient of relatedness, mm-hmm. which is a way of sort of quantifying how close the genetic relationship is between the actor who performs the behavior and the recipient who's affected. And it's capturing in this mathematically rigorous way the, the kind of insight that was expressed by JBS Haldane in this kind of uh, famous story about he was in a pub with John Maynard Smith who, who tells the story that they were in a pub together in London. And someone asked Haldane, you know, under what conditions would you jump into a river to pull out a, a, a someone drowning in it? And Haldane supposedly calculated on the back of an envelope for some minutes and said, well, I'd I'd do it for two brothers or eight cousins. <laughs> and it's this idea that whether the behavior will be selected or not, whether the gene will spread in the population, crucially depends on how closely related the recipient is to the actor. You know, so how likely it is that by performing that altruistic behavior, that behavior that helps them, you'll actually increase the representation of that gene in future populations. That's the insight Hamilton's rule is, is basically capturing.
1: Okay, and, and and you kind of reinterpret it, to some extent anyway, mm. uh, in response to some of the objections to it. One yeah. being be that it's supposedly tautological. I mean, this was, I think, E.O. Wilson mm. and other people, like, yeah. just, you know, push back against it. So, yeah. so, can you explain that that generalization that well, you... Well, that's did?
2: right, yeah. I mean, so Novak and, and Tarnita and Wilson, in that paper from 2010 I mentioned, make... Um, make the claim that Hamilton's rule almost never holds. They say this is almost never a correct description of the conditions for evolution of social behaviour. And um, it's sort of, it all depends on how the terms in the rule are defined, basically. that you know, Critics of Novak and Tarnita and Wilson have, have hit back at that, saying, you know, look, you, it's not true that it almost never holds. It's actually an incredibly general result you know, that requires virtually no assumptions at all. But it all depends on how you define cost and benefit. And you need to define cost and benefit in a particular way for that to be true. You need to define it as a kind of, in a statistical way, you need to define, the, you know, the cost of a, of a social behavior as kind of the, the fitness cost that is statistically associated with, with possessing the genes for that behavior. And you need to define benefit and relatedness in particular ways as well. And then the next sort of step in the debate is that the critics of Hamilton's rule, you know, at that point fire back and they say, well, you've you've generalized the meaning of cost and benefit and relatedness to such an extent, you know, that's been so generalized compared to its ordinary intuitive meaning,
0: mm-hmm.
2: that what you've now got is this kind of tautology that really sort of says nothing. If it's as general as the as, as if it's so general that it covers every process of natural selection, no matter what the details they say, then then it's not really saying anything about those processes and can't really play any explanatory role. Mm. Um, but I, I reject that, you know, and I, and I reject that by arguing for this claim that, you know, Hamilton's rule is really, its role has often been misunderstood. It, its role is actually the role of what I call an organising framework. It's not something that gives us a kind of complete explanation of how social behaviour evolves it's not something that settles all the questions we want to ask about social behavior, but it helps us sort of organize inquiry, it helps us organize the kind of more detailed explanations that we're going to give.
1: Um, and those are like, you have direct versus indirect fitness explanations and then hybrid explanations yeah. and then mm. non-selective explanations. Could you, could you explain those? Yeah. Well, that
2: direct versus indirect fitness is the, is Kind of the the crucial distinction okay. Hamilton's rule gives us, right? because there are some there are some social behaviors that require positive RB, uh, where R is coefficient of relatedness and B is the benefit, um, because they impose some kind of cost on the actor. And then there are social behaviors that are not like that. They don't require positive RB to evolve because the the actor actually benefits over the long run. And in fact, a lot of social behaviour is really in that that second category. You know, it, it, organisms do it because over the long run, it benefits them in terms of their direct reproductive output. It's just that you often have to wait a while for those consequences to come back. You know, cases of reciprocity are, are fundamentally like that. You know, where the uh, in vampire bats, for example, the uh, vampire bats will kind of share when well, they've got a a blood meal, they feed on, on the blood of, of, of other things, they will share it with other bats in the group that have previously shared blood with them. So there's this reciprocity going on. But that reciprocity is really a way that brings benefits to the organism that performs the behavior over the long term. So in the end, the explanation for why that behavior evolves is a, is a direct fitness explanation. It's not one that fundamentally relies on positive relatedness. And then you've got this other category, you know, social behavior where the explanation really does fundamentally rely on there being some positive relatedness there. And a lot of, uh, I mean, behaviors that are genuinely biologically altruistic, including the behaviors of worker insects in ant colonies and things like that, are in that category of things, I think, that have to be given a kind of uh, indirect fitness explanation in terms of benefits that fall on relatives. And then you mentioned the other two categories, I mean, There's also this important category of hybrid explanations where you have both kinds of effects at work. You know, there's benefits falling on relatives, and there's also benefits uh, coming back to the actor. So the the trait basically evolves for two different reasons. And then you've got non-selective explanations. And I think this is an overlooked category, you know, and an overlooked role of Hamilton's rule Mm
0: -hmm.
2: is to tell us when we have to look for an explanation that's not selective. Because if RB does not outweigh C, if we find that RB is less than C, you know, benefits related by relatedness is less than cost, that tells us we then have to go and look for some explanation that is not appealing to natural selection, but is appealing to some other kind of evolutionary process. And that's a crucial part of the, the Hamilton's rule explanatory role
0: as well. Slash NBN fifty to get fifty percent off.
1: Okay, so uh, you mentioned uh, the concept of, of kin selection and, mm. and group selection, and uh, one of one of Hamilton's innovations was the concept of kin. That you know, group selection had already existed yeah. in some way. Kin selection was the innovation. Mm. Can you can you explain these two and how they differ?
2: Well, I mean, that's the whole chapter of the book. Yeah, Yeah, It's it's this strange debate, actually, where, you know, they originally seemed like very, very different ideas. Um, As I said, you know, the idea of group selection really, I would say, predates the idea of kin selection as a kind of well-known mode of evolutionary explanation. Because before Hamilton, people were talking about trying to explain social behavior in terms of what it does for the good of the group. Now, and then Hamilton was deeply opposed to that. And indeed, it is just a very flawed way of thinking about evolution because uh, there's selection within groups, not just between them. Within group selection is usually stronger. So things you know don't generally evolve when they're for the good of the group. Um, and Hamilton came along with this different way of explaining social behavior in terms of benefits falling on individuals who are your genetic relatives. So it's this kind of individualistic mode of explanation Um, But that was the 60s view, you know, different ideas, individualistic mode of explanation versus more of a kind of group mode. Um, And then it all got a bit more complicated because starting with Hamilton and then other people picked up this idea, kin selection and group selection started to be seen as really being just different ways of describing the same idea. Um, And it's kind of, it's not easy to see why that happened, but Basically, it's that, I mean, both both ideas underwent a process of generalization. Mm. You know, you start off with this nice idea of kin selections, benefits falling on your close genetic relatives like brothers or cousins. And then it gets generalized and people start to say, well, you know, they don't have to be brothers or cousins, you know, as long as there is a genetic correlation there of some kind, as long as they're sort of more closely genetically correlated with you than just a random organism the uh-huh. population, then that's still kin selection in a broad sense of the word. And then at the same time, group selection was also being kind of reinvented and generalised by people like David Sloan Wilson, where they started to say, well, you know, the groups don't really have to be that kind of well-defined, really. It's enough if you have these so-called trait groups where you've got organisms interacting with each other and affecting each other's fitness. So even if the group is really quite loosely defined, even if it sort of comes and goes, doesn't persist over generations, we can still call that group selection. And in fact, those ideas became, in fact, group selection was kind of rebranded as multi-level selection around that time, in the 70s. And those ideas became so generalized that people started to wonder whether they were even distinct. You know, and you get these equivalence results showing that really, in a sense, they're not distinct. The the most general statements of the two views end up just basically saying the same thing.
1: Uh huh. Um, but you think that they're they're di- they're different mm. as causal processes?
2: Yeah, I think that's not the end of the story because uh, I think that that trend towards generalization of the two ideas to some extent led biologists to to miss important differences. Right? And in particular, there's a sense in which causality dropped out of the picture a bit from general theory. I mean, I think biologists carried on thinking about causality. It wasn't as if they just suddenly dropped the entire concept of causality. But when it came to formulating general theory, they came to prefer statistical formalisms, You know, ideas like the price equation, Hamilton's rule, where causality wasn't really being explicitly represented anymore. Uh, and I think that sort of led to people arguing for these equivalence results while sort of missing the fact that they were glossing over some causal distinctions that were actually worth drawing. You know, and when, when you draw those distinctions, you can start to recover a kind of difference between kin selection and group selection, but it's not a sharp difference anymore. It's a more complicated thing than that.
1: Okay, um, they become these broad yeah.
2: overlapping categories. You know, so there's there's yeah. this big region of overlap where you can just say that that is really kin group selection. You know, it's it's neither one nor the other because you've got the the paradigm features of both. You've got really well defined groups competing, and you've got close relatives interacting. You know, but okay. uh, and you have cases that have neither of the features of both and cases that have the features of one, but not the other. So you end up with this space of possibilities. It's not a sharp distinction, but it's not true that there's no distinction to be drawn.
1: Okay. Uh, Good. So, I mean, so let me, let me ask, I mean, you, uh, I think you already, we've already talked about the concept of inclusive fit, inclusive fitness, right? Mm. By, by relatedness. Um, uh, One, uh, the second part of the book involves uh, some of the extensions of these these basic ideas. Mm, um, yeah. And, I, and that's where I want to turn to now. Yeah. It's
2: um,
1: probably so the you, bolder
2: part of the book.
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's a number of different – one one thing is um, the role of culture, right? I mean, that's a big one. Um, but mm. uh, you mentioned earlier that what had gotten you into this was the idea of a multicellular cellular organism
2: yeah
1: being thought of as a as a social as a society of some sort yeah um can you can you go back to that issue at the, you know that's that's the chapter that 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 ended up being um, mm. uh what what is that what is your view now of that that idea that that had captured you so long so long ago
2: yeah, I still like the idea a lot, actually. I mean I, I came to realise that it had this long history, and it was a big idea in nineteenth century biology. Almost as soon as biologists came to realize that all organisms were composed of cells, they immediately started to think, well, how how autonomous are these cells? You know, is, is it actually the case that what we thought of as this single unified organism was was really this kind of social thing, really this society? Of cells, it was an important idea for, for Heckel, for example, and I think the, the idea is really due a, a revival. You know, it kind of dropped out of the picture in the twentieth century in biology, but is undergoing a bit of a revival, and I think that's a good thing. I kind of think it's it's one perspective on the organism among many, right? And you don't have to you don't have to think of organisms as societies, but for certain purposes, it's a very very useful perspective, I think. And I think that particularly if if you want to be trying to explain why there are multicellular organisms at all. You know, most life on Earth is unicellular. Uh, single-celled organisms like bacteria, they they seem to be having a good time. You know, they, they split in half every 20 minutes. They're reproducing very fast. They seem to be doing great in evolutionary terms. And it leaves you with this interesting puzzle about why it was ever advantageous for cells to get together and form multicellular organisms. I mean, we're used to thinking of ourselves as somehow the, the pinnacle of evolution, right? So, of course, inevitably, everything led to us. Mm-hmm. It's really not like that. It's actually quite a, quite a puzzle to, to explain why there would be multicellular organisms at all and why it couldn't just carry on being the case that all life on Earth was, was unicellular. And I feel like a social view of the organism helps a bit with that, with that puzzle, because you know, it gets us thinking about the organism in the right way. You know, it becomes a question about cooperation and altruism. You know, why did some cells evolve to kind of altruistically dedicate their lives essentially to helping other cells to reproduce, which is what most of the cells in your body are doing?
1: Huh. so um...
2: Only a very, very small number will ever have a chance of producing a new organism
1: right well then what what accounts for i guess the unity um i mean this is not something you go into in the mm. book but what, you know so in i i mentioned that i have i've discussed some books on social ontology and yeah and, and there, of course one of the big one of the big um issues is whether we should quantify over groups of people right as as individuals th- themselves sort of mm. super individuals and um, and so it seems like there's a number of different levels of of conglomeration or mm. cooperation, or I, I'm not sure exactly what would be the right concept, yeah, uh, where you can talk about the, the single cells, you can talk about bacterial colonies or ant colonies. yeah, um, you took you could talk about the an individual multicellular mm. organism, um and you can talk about an individual. Uh, you know, a club or, you know, some very tightly knit group, maybe a cult or something. Um, Does, you know, from your perspective, I mean, how how would one, are, are there tools in social evolutionary theory that would enable one to distinguish these? Or are they really just kind of on a par in terms of social evolution?
2: You're thinking about groups of humans here,
1: or yeah uh, or or you know, like why not have a you know you have the wolf who is the multicellular organism,,
0: yeah.
1: um, but you also have the pack, yeah, right, um, and why not just or or flocks of birds are another good example, yeah, you have each individual bird who is, is a, a multicellular mm. organism, and we we quantify over the birds, yeah, but then the question is, well, why not quantify over the flock because right. it has all these coordinated behaviors and so forth.
2: That's right. I think when you're looking at insects, that is that is a great question to ask because some insect colonies become so richly cooperative. You know, there's really there's no opportunity really for a worker in a, in a sort of advanced eusocial insect species to have any kind of life outside of the group. You know, it's committed to the group. It's got no other way of living. In those sorts of contexts, it can be very very useful as a shift in perspective to think of the entire group as being the organism here. And those individual ants are really playing the same role that the cells in our body play in us. Now, I think you need, you need a certain level of complexity for that to be, that to become a useful perspective. Right. So I'd say with wolf packs and flocks of birds, the, the cooperation is too loose. It is, it's too possible for an individual to sort of change group. Um, and the, the division of labor within the group is not as not as defined. But when things get to extremes, like you see in insects, there is this gradual shift. And it, it, for many purposes, it can be more sensible to, to see the group as the organism um, and not even a kind of superorganism. You sometimes say this term superorganism mm. in the context of insects. But I don't really like that term. I mean, you don't need to call it a superorganism. You can just say it's an organism. It's exactly the same thing as us. It's uh, individual lower level units cooperating with each other very, very closely.
1: Uh-huh. So would uh would any human groups by those criteria uh you know count as individuals on your view
2: no I don't think so. <laughs> no, in that um the amount of sort of uh, disharmony and conflict within human groups I think is the is the overwhelming feature of them. Um, I mean, it's about whether there are whether there are processes that really reliably stabilise cooperation and that allow it to ratchet up to ever more extreme degrees, to the point where an individual really can't have any existence outside of that group. Uh, and for whatever reason, it seems like maybe humans were might have been at the early stage of that kind of transition. You know, it could have been the the early stage of a transition to a higher level of individual, but it seems as though that transition has stalled, I think. We we haven't got there, right? It seems as though human groups are never really such that an individual can have no existence outside of the group they're in. They're never really cooperative to the same extent as an ant colony. Mm. It's always. I mean, compared to chimpanzees, there's far more cooperation. But compared to ants, there's far more conflict.
1: Uh-huh. Right. Um, and, and yet we do manage to have languages which require mm. a great deal of cooperation, obviously.
2: Yes, mutually beneficial cooperation. Yeah. We struggle a bit with altruism, I think, in the biological sense of the term.
1: Why is that? Hmm. Well, I mean, part
2: of it is that I think a lot of human evolution, you know, took place in small groups. Um, those groups were not composed, or may well not have been composed of close genetic relatives. Um, so human evolution is is kind of, for the most part, cooperation between non-relatives, and it's really very challenging to have stable biological altruism between non-relatives in the end, it's much, much easier to have stable cooperation that is mutually beneficial. Um, and I think on the whole, that's what humans do. You know, we, We've been incredibly successful at developing ways of cooperating for our mutual benefit, including networks of reciprocity and things like that, which, as, as I said earlier, you know, can really be thought of as cooperating for mutual benefit in, in, a, in a broad sense. Um, that's what we're very good at. Now, but when it comes to real biological altruism, sacrificing your own chances of survival and reproduction so that someone else can increase theirs, I would say I think that uh, that most of that is directed at close genetic relatives. There are things we do for our own children, for example, that we probably wouldn't do for anyone else.
1: Mm. Which is kind of unfortunate in our mm. situation now with, with global warming. There seems to be some big effects of, mm. of this inability to cooperate. That's right, yeah.
2: We suffer terribly from uh, public goods problems, collective action problems, free rider problems. And this is unsurprising because we now live in these very, very large societies where these problems are rife and free riding is, is easy, particularly on, on things like carbon emissions. Um, and we don't have that genetic relatedness that is there in... Um, in insects and bacteria, and among the cells of our own body, to overcome that.
1: Mm. So uh, we've been inching a bit towards a, another big topic, which is cultural um, mm. cultural relatedness um, or cultural yeah. transmission. Um, so t- just to to get into that aspect of the whole idea of social evolution, a, a lot of what we've been talking about so far, and certainly in in the in Hamilton and, and, uh, you know, classical so-called, you know, evolutionary theorists, Mm. uh, it's, it's all genetic, you know, it's your brother, two brothers or eight cousins, right? Um, it's not, uh, it's not culture. And yet, Mm. uh, culture does play an important role, uh, in some way in terms of in one of the, in, uh, methods of inheritance. So could you, could you, yeah introduce a bit of how culture enters into the whole idea of social evolution yeah i mean this is
2: important in humans right in understanding human evolution quite possibly also important in some other species too you know including perhaps uh, cetaceans like whales and dolphins and other primates like chimpanzees uh, but overwhelmingly important in humans now it's this recognition that humans have created a different kind of inheritance system. I mean, we have the genetic inheritance system, of course. You know, we we inherit traits from our biological parents genetically. But in addition, we're very, very good at sort of high fidelity, high bandwidth social learning, learning skills, values, beliefs, ideas from each other. And this creates a different kind of inheritance system through which we can ask questions about, Social evolution and the spread of social behavior, uh, and I think it's pretty plausible actually that you know cultural evolution is the major part of the story about the evolution of cooperation in humans. We talked a bit before about you know the, the fact that these groups of early humans may well not have been groups of close relatives due to the amount of migration between the groups. Um, and that the role of genetic relatedness in stabilizing cooperation or altruism in those groups is very limited indeed. Um, but a lot of the behavior, I think, a lot of the norms, a lot of the dispositions, including pro-social dispositions, dispositions towards altruism, uh, would have been and, and really still are culturally transmitted, transmitted through social learning, from learning from each other. Uh, and that's, Creates a whole bunch of interesting puzzles, questions, challenges for social evolution theory. It's what the last chapter of the book is about.
1: Um, yeah, well, there, there you introduce the concept mm. of broad scope pro social preferences. Mm. Um, could you could you explain that? It's just the,
2: the it's my term for a, a, to, for something that a lot of people in the social sciences, sort of evolutionary social sciences think is the real puzzle about human behavior, that we have these, these dispositions to be pro-social in the sense that we'll kind of cooperate by default. You know, we're, we're prepared to incur at least small costs, perhaps not large costs, in return for uh, no obvious opportunity for any gain, but to help others. And economic games and things like that, people... Uh, do experimental sort of public goods games and things like that and they tend to find that at least a percentage of the population does not free ride you know and the fact that we're not all free riders all of the time seems absolutely crucial to explaining how human society hangs together at all yeah Uh, I mean we said there are a lot of big free rider problems that, that might mean humanity doesn't last for very much longer but the fact we've got to this stage at all is largely due to our ability to, to kind of manage these free rider problems and, and uh, cooperate even when we could free ride. Um, so there's this puzzle here for the for the evolutionary social sciences about why humans are pro-social when there's no opportunity for reciprocity, when you're not cooperating with relatives, when cooperation is costly, when there's no reputational benefit. Um, and that puzzle is, I think, still a still an important challenge that none of the kind of well-known mechanisms for the evolution of cooperation fully address um
1: so how how so the free i mean you mentioned free rider mm. right how yeah uh yeah how how do how does free riding fit in is is it just like well this is just uh we we can expect a certain amount of selfish behavior and it just differs between individuals, and those that are less—I uh, I don't know—less social in some defined sense. Um, those are the people who who become the free riders. So, is there any, are there any predictions or conceptual frameworks for understanding free riding as you know how, how free riding? comes about um mm, how it well, how it how it sticks around um is the is the writing
2: is the is the default right it's, the, it's okay. the default expectation okay from a self-interested agent in a sort of public good situation where you know if you uh you could reduce your personal carbon emissions say but it wouldn't really make any significant difference to the uh the public good and it would be a significant cost to you so the Default expectation is that a self-interested agent wouldn't do it, um, and it's hard to kind of—it's hard to really say reliably how cooperative humans are. I think, you know, because there's—it's always possible to to say that uh, on the whole people do free ride. You no, know, but I think um, if everyone was a free rider all of the time in every every social dilemma then human societies wouldn't hang together at all. So in a way, the puzzle is one about how human societies hang together at all, given that for it to hang together requires us to do things like like voting and Mm -hmm. donating blood and volunteering and stuff like that, where, okay, not everyone does it, only a small percentage do it. But the fact that anyone does it at all is something that requires explanation.
1: Um, And then... Uh you uh in this again in this the same chapter on, on cultural mm. selection, you distinguish between um two two types um yeah. and you put forward what you call a cultural relatedness hypothesis. Mm. Could you could you explain that?
2: Yeah, cultural relatedness hypothesis. Right. So one of the, the most popular, currently influential ideas in this general area of trying to explain pro social behavior in humans is cultural group selection, um, where the thought is that, well, human populations, certainly in the the distant past, um, and to some extent perhaps even now, are structured into groups. Those groups compete with each other. The groups are fairly internally homogenous and that you have these social norms that everyone in the group is expected to conform to. And the groups that have the more sort of cooperative norms end up spreading at the expense of the ones that have less cooperative norms um, and then there's, there's a certain irony in in the popularity of that idea i suppose because we've seen that in the in the genetic case group selection is the kind of the minority the sort of controversial idea and it's kin selection that is the, the more mainstream view and you know, group selection is often regarded by many biologists even now, I mean, perhaps somewhat unfairly as being really closely tied up with kind of woolly thinking about things evolving for the good of the group and the good right. of the species. And yet when you turn to cultural evolution theory, the situation is reversed. You know, group selection is a very popular idea there, cultural group selection. Um, and really no one is talking about cultural kin selection, or cult- you know, trying to apply some of those ideas from Hamilton, To the case of cultural evolution so that's what i do in the last chapter of the book i sort of say well here's a framework for thinking about the cultural evolution of cooperation that is in the same spirit as hamilton's Mm -hmm. and that is based on the idea that what will get favored by selection is uh social behaviors that satisfy a a cultural version of hamilton's rule where the um the meanings of cost and benefit are the same but the meaning of relatedness is now different because the, right. the, the inheritance system has changed. So the meaning of relatedness changes too, and it becomes rather than a me- being a measure of genetic correlation, becomes a measure of cultural correlation between the interacting agents.
1: So this would so e- e- cultural kin selection would be um, I, uh, you know such things as. Your religious kin, co-religionists, co-same-language group, um, are these the sorts of things that you have in mind? That's the sort of thing where it
2: depends on the precise trait of interest. Um, But the thought is that while there are various processes that cause some people to be, in a manner of speaking, your cultural relatives, where you might not know them as individuals, but due to the structure of the population, they're much more likely than average to share the cultural beliefs, values, or skills that you do. And then the nature of the process in question will depend on the the particular trait you're interested in. So if the particular trait was a religious belief, you know, a belief about a, a deity or something, then it would be religious processes, you know, processes of grouping people by religion that would create these patterns. And it would be other, other members of the same religion that would be your cultural relatives with respect to that trait.
1: Mm-hmm okay, um so let me just uh, one one final question mm. and it kind of goes beyond what you've talked about in the book i was yeah. I was thinking about uh the the hierarchies in in human society and I think you do mm. touch at one point on the evolution of hierarchy um, because cooperation yeah. of course as such doesn't have with it hierarchy so how, yeah. could you say that and and you know, kind of behind that question, of course, is um, the whole idea of, of social roles that themselves kind of, uh, you know, create and maintain various hierarchies, at least in a uh, in a human mm. society, right? Um, which are pretty pressing issues these days. Yeah. So how 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 does hierarchy? I mean, hierarchy doesn't seem to benefit anybody except for the the people on top.
2: Yeah, the elites.
1: <laughs> yeah, mm.
2: it's an interesting puzzle. I, I mean, a lot of Kim Sturany's recent work is is addressed at this puzzle,
1: uh-huh.
2: where you know it's, it's generally thought that the kind of the Pleistocene, you know, prior to about twelve thousand years ago, human populations were structured into smallish groups, you know. A, a, You'd have a a sort of residential camp or band of maybe twenty five to a hundred individuals, and those bands would be relatively egalitarian, you know, not in the sense that everyone kind of had explicit egalitarian beliefs, but in the sense there'd be no real hierarchy of control in those groups. People would share food with each other, things like that. And then if that hypothesis is correct, then you've got some sort of transition that occurs about you know twelve thousand years ago when humans go from hunter-gatherer foraging societies to kind of settled agrarian societies, you've got this puzzle about why that why that came along with hierarchy and, and the loss of forager egalitarianism, the loss of equality, the emergence of these elites that control the masses. Um, and it is an interesting pos- uh, puzzle because you You might intuitively expect that the that sort of arrangement would be destabilized by uprisings from the from the masses, and evidently that that hasn't happened um i mean one possible explanation that Kim has talked about is that well if you if you believe some of this cultural group selection stuff you know if you believe that the populations were divided into these tribal groups almost that were constantly at war with each other constantly fighting each other um Then you have the basis for a hypothesis where, you know, within the groups, it doesn't pay to, you know, it's bad within groups to have this hierarchical structure, but it might help you in the between-group competition if it's the case that having a hierarchical structure within the group somehow sort of improves your ability to win wars because you've got this central organization, central leadership, clear command hierarchies, things like that. Mm-hmm. So it's a hypothesis. So I uh, don't know if I believe it or not. But
1: I was just going to ask yeah. if, if this is something you buy into or or not. It's uh, I'm
2: always uh, skeptical of, of almost any hypothesis about human evolution that requires very sharply delineated group structure. Uh huh because I think it's a very natural thing for us to assume that there was that kind of group structure, but I'm not uh, convinced that it's borne out all that reliably by by contemporary ethnography. I mean, I think the often the reality in human populations is that the populations are very fluid, they're very... groups blur into each other, people have these shifting identities, someone can be part of more than one group. And uh, I think people in the cultural evolution field often exaggerate the groupiness of human populations they they often mm-hmm. reify groups they make them more real than they actually are in the human case I, that that's that's my suspicion i think
1: uh-huh. huh well it 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 injects a bit of of uh, optimism i would i think um, to the idea mm. of of social change uh you know even if social you add, change yeah yeah even if even if you have social you know cultural kin select i mean the genetic uh, there's not much you can do about who your relatives are um mm. and that's just kind of a, a, a given biological fact yeah uh, and that can't be changed culture once you add cultural evolution cultural inheritance through social learning uh there's a bit there's an obvious sense in which that's much mm. more that is more fungible, but yeah. it's it's not clear the extent of how fungible um, it is, and when you suggest that groups are really not mm. the, the, they're not rigid in in a in a way that you might that that people working in cultural evolution. Uh, tend to reify them a bit more than they then is really justified that yeah. appears to suggest that uh, that you know some of the adjustments to human cooperation in society and the organization uh, are are also are themselves fungible
2: could be well certainly population structure in humans is is incredibly fluid when inheritance is cultural you know inheritance itself becomes rather more fluid rather more open ended uh it's very unclear you know you're you're not constrained to just producing a small number of uh descendants who are very closely related to you you can you can have cultural influence on a large scale um and yet you know i, I do think there's a kind of there's a a sort of bleak idea at the heart of social evolution theory which this idea that for an altruistic behavior to evolve, it fundamentally has to be the case that the benefits of that behavior fall on recipients who are more likely than average to share the transmissible basis of that behavior. Mm-hmm. Now, that is a familiar insight in the genetic case. And I also argue that it may extend over to the cultural case, too, when the, when the behavior is culturally inherited. And there's, there's something a little bit bleak about that because it suggests... Um, Altruism, if it's to evolve by a process of selection, it will never be completely indiscriminate, and you know, it will never be completely impartial. It will never be kind of peace and love to, uh, to yeah. all humans.
1: Right. Yeah. Oh dear. <laughs>
2: um, uh, I mean, it's just uh I don't really talk in the book about the political
1: no implications,
2: you don't. the politics of this at all, because I tend to you know I want to focus on the facts. I always think the. The political implications can always cut both ways. I mean, it's, if we come to take the view that um, our evolved dispositions are really quite a severe constraint on moral progress and social progress, and you could argue that just means we should work all the harder to try and overcome those constraints by organising society in a, in a better way. Um, you could even argue that if we if we find that to be the case, we should be trying to edit our own genomes to... Uh, overcome some of the constraints our own genomes impose on us um, maybe but in any case I think these ideas are kind of they're politically ambivalent Uh almost whatever your political views you can take these ideas and try and uh, twist them to to serve that view
1: Uh uh-huh okay
2: that's why I don't really discuss it in the book
1: right so, well, we're running. We're running out of time. So, I do want to um, ask, what sort of what projects are on the horizon for you? What are you are you following up this book with something related, or have you gone in a different? Oh, well, direction? I'm, uh, I'm
2: mostly working on animal consciousness at the moment. Uh huh. Animal sentience. Yeah, I mean, if I eventually write a book on that, and I hope I will, we can have a talk about that.
1: Yeah. Well, that's my up my alley for sure.
2: Yeah, I think it's a huge question and an exciting time, actually, for working on animal consciousness. I really feel as though there's people from different disciplines coming to it, including my discipline, philosophy, but also neuroscience, physiology, animal welfare science, psychology. People are really starting to to say, let's have a go at that question. It's Mm -hmm. one of the hardest questions in in science, I think, trying to work out which animals are conscious and which are not. But, uh, But I'm very excited about that at the moment.
1: Well, um, I would like to thank you again for joining us at New Books in Philosophy, and I uh, look forward to uh, reading, or I should say reading more of your work on animal sentience. Great.
2: Yes. Nice to talk to you.
1: Okay. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Thanks. You've been listening to my interview with Jonathan Birch, Associate Professor at the London School of Economics. We've been talking about his new book, The Philosophy of Social Evolution, which is just out from Oxford University Press. I'm Carrie Figdor. This is New Books in Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and thank you for listening.